Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm joined by Spike's editor, Tom Slater, on this extraordinary day in British politics to discuss the unravelling of Liz Truss. So it's over. Liz Truss is out. 44 days in office, making her the shortest serving prime minister in history. It's been an incredible just whirlwind of sort of just six weeks. Tom, what's your sort of immediate reaction to this uh, resignation? Well, of course, it was inevitable by this point. Of course, you know, she had to go. The lettuce mm. had to win. <laughs> uh, the Thatcher Tribute Act had to hang up her pussy bow for good because of everything that has happened. Even since we last recorded the podcast on mm. Saturday, her position has become more and more untenable. And I suppose the feeling I'm left with at this particular point is just in a way how surprising it was that she was ever elevated that particular office in the first place. Yeah. Um, it's been... She's come under incredible pressure from a lot of um, quite sort of extreme and anti-democratic forces in some respects, uh, the force of the markets, the technocrats, um, the media, all of those things we'll probably talk about. But there was also just a thing that was always at the centre, which is that she is just really sort of rubbish. I yeah. mean, the, the argument that was made for her going into all of this was that she was underestimated. Mm. The woman who got up at Tory party conference, and he's famous for jabbering about cheese and pork markets and all the rest of it, is just this on the quiet genius who really has a plan, really has a vision for the country and is there to implement it. Given what's happened since that mini budget was delivered, it was all junked. And then just everything in the Tory party just kind of completely fell apart and a government just crumbled before our very eyes. You are just left with that sense that has been in British politics for some time though. It's just the substance, the quality of these individuals is so low. And I think that's one thing that seeing her give that very brief and very clipped Yeah. Um, resignation speech where she could barely scrape together two achievements in which to talk about, just really ram that home, I think. It is a pretty damning indictment of Westminster that we've ended up with a British, you know, Prime Minister who is only about four percentage points higher mm. in her approval rating than Vladimir Putin, um, who, as you alluded to, um, stayed, at, didn't manage to outlast the shelf life of a lettuce. <laughs> this <laughs> the, the, the Daily, Daily Star's live stream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, you're right, Tom. I mean, why was she? Why do you think she was so unpopular? Why did she totally fail to connect with the public? I mean, there's an argument to say that she didn't even try. No, I think that's right. I mean, she made a virtue out of the fact that her program was unpopular and that she was there to kind of administer the medicine that was mm. needed, even if the public weren't that up for it. There was even a quote doing the rounds where when there was a lot of speculation about, is she going to say, how could she possibly cling on, um, saying that, you know, Liz, she's like, we're not populists, you know, we're here to do what is right and all the rest of it. So, of course, she never really had the public on side. She yeah. was kind of part of a very small layer of politics and of society that, to the extent that's interested in Brexit, it is to basically kind of ramp out a sort of, if you wanted to put it somewhat unkindly, kind of Singapore on Thames type of programme, which the working classes who voted for the Tory party and for Brexit just were never going to wear, and that was pretty obvious. I think what that was compounded by was the fact that um, she also didn't have the support, really, of her own party. She certainly didn't have the support of the broader establishment. And also, she was fundamentally inept, as it yeah. finally turned out. I mean, not that we want to fetishise competence and being good managers and all the rest of it, but I think that was the one thing that was really rammed home. The market reaction took her by surprise, probably the maybe the even the polling reaction took her by surprise. There was no attempt to roll the pitch for this particular programme. 
And then what we've seen in recent days is even the kind of fundamental basics of sort of party management, of being able to deal with your communications, which became a scandal about 24 hours ago, of course, in relation to that. speeches are just so wooden, you know. On every sort of level. So anywhere that she could look to gain authority from, her parliamentary party, Mm. the public, even just having the support of, you know, the markets or whatever, all of them evaporated or just weren't there to begin with. And so I suppose the writing was on the wall from that point onwards. I think, uh, yeah, that's that's fair enough. And, um, you know, she wasn't really much of a Democrat. She never, as you said, she never tried to win the pu- support of the public. But it seems as if some of the forces that have ousted her mm. are even less democratic. I mean, it sort of begins with the reaction of the markets to the mini budget. Then, you know, we have this sort of technocratic takeover in the form of Jeremy Hunt and Grant Shapps, who seem to be thanking Jeremy Hunt, the mm-hmm. de facto leader for his new position rather than trust. I mean... That is also a kind of alarming aspect to this as well, isn't it? Definitely. I think the the first point is worth saying is the fact that her inadequacies created a vacuum. Yeah. um, And her inability to even just stick to a particular programme, you could argue as to whether it was even possible for her to do so, given how haywire things went. But at the same time, we just got into a situation in which the orthodoxy, in which the technocrats Mm. just filled the gap. They reasserted themselves quite naturally. Um, And Jeremy Hunt taking over just under a week ago, as it was now, becoming the Chancellor and almost immediately saying that Trustonomics was over, yeah. that it was shredded, that we were going to see both tax rises and spending cuts, that so many of her kind of flagship policies, that even the energy security guarantee, which was the last thing she really had to shout about, was going to be trimmed back from two years to six months. Um, and what's interesting about that, I mean, the first thing to say is that was fundamentally it was a coup. I mean, yeah. it was a soft coup. It was a bloodless coup. But well, it even had the coup visuals with that strange <laughs> television address of, you with know, the flags in the background. as you called him General Hunt, you yeah, know, he didn't, speaking to us down the camera. It, all that was missing were the medals and the epaulets and things. Yeah. But it, yeah, it was really quite striking. But on the other hand, what was interesting about it, I mean, the reason Jeremy Hunt was there, James Forsyth Spectator column this week kind of makes this point. It wasn't because he was seen as the one in the party who had a brilliant understanding of the markets, mm. who really knew what would calm them. It's because he would do what he was told. Yeah. It was because that he would listen to the Bank of England, to the Treasury, to the orthodoxy, mm. effectively. And that's why he was elevated, effectively. Yeah. So what we're seeing, it's not as if Jeremy Hunt and Grant Shapps have kind of met in a room above a pub and decided that they're going to take over the government or anything like that. They were also invited in, both yeah. of them, it's worth saying. Um, but it was also just the fact that in that vacuum that Truss's rubbishness created, it was filled by mm. the forces of technocracy, of orthodoxy, of all the rest of it. And it was fascinating. It was almost like a internal, almost just within the Tory party, replaying of what we saw in the wake of the debt crisis in, in Europe in 2011, in Greece and Italy, where essentially you have unelected figures, or in Jeremy Hunt's case, at least elected by his constituents, <laughs> if no one else, coming in to sort out the mess, to in, yeah. to dole out the medicine to enforce mm. the austerity measures. And what was different about this case is it was happening at the um, invitation of Liz Truss and it was happening kind of within the Tory party itself, within yeah. the political class itself. But that was still the effect of it, was to say that this particular administration has lost the confidence of the experts in the markets and so on. And so it needs to be elbowed aside or, or lobotomised, at least in this particular case. Lobotomised is an apt word because you could see her, you know, when Jeremy Hunt was delivering his statement to the uh, to the to the Commons, you know, Liz Truss just sort of sat there with a blank stare as mm. her whole programme is being torn up. I mean, it seems a real tragedy that this particular moment has emboldened the experts, the technocrats, if you if you like, because 
you know, they, they're now using this as an opportunity to say, look what happens when you have democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, they're blaming it on Brexit. They're blaming it on the idiocy of the Conservative Party membership, who should never be allowed to have a say again, rather than seeing it, um, you know, as we've seen it as a bit of a... Liz Truss had none of... Uh, didn't have the public on her side. You mm-hmm. know? No, exactly. And I think that's that's that reassertion of the old ways of doing things, of the old technocracy... Um, this kind of tyranny of the consensus mm. as it's defined by a handful of people has been really quite explicit. I mean, there was this William Hague column in the Sunday Times, I believe, or the Times, um, making precisely this point that the age of ideology is over. It was a very brief age if it didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. um, and that now it's all about competence. There was a particular line, I can't remember it exactly, but it was effectively along the lines of the question is now how do we work out how to work within the constraints that we cannot escape? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen the word orthodoxy come back as a positive. Yeah. Because obviously that was something that people would usually use to rail against treasury orthodoxy, mm. a failed orthodoxy, the idea that the old ways of doing things had, had failed us and so on. But you're seeing sort of Financial Times journalists and other people saying, yeah. hailing the return of the orthodoxy, which I think on the one hand shows how much those sections of politics, their kind of tails are up, as it were. They recognise this as a sort of win for them. Um, but at the same time, I think it also reminds us what a bloodless worldview that is mm. uninspiring the kind of most desiccated form of kind of old yeah. of the old politics nothing should change nothing should grow exactly. no disruption mm-hmm. and that's something which um is going to engender a backlash as it did before and i think that the the riding high at the moment the idea that we've put that strange period that strange post-brexit period to bed is completely mm. ridiculous because in what they're talking about here is basically kind of recreating the conditions that gave birth to the sort of populist revolt in the first place yeah and so i think it's uh, naive, to say the least, on their part, for them to be feel like they're riding so high at this particular <laughs> juncture, you know? I mean, it's obviously, we don't know who's going to be the next leader. It's hard to say what direction the, the Tory party is going to take over this. But if we assume that, um, you know, either Truss's vision or even the sort of technocratic vision as being set out by Jeremy Hunt, that is a major betrayal from where the Tories were in 2019. The extraordinary kind of shift from the sort of... Po- Populism light, I guess, that mm. Boris was offering to to what we have now. I mean, what what do you think that means for the Conservative Party? Well, I think it's just shown that it hasn't really no idea what it's what it's doing, um, because especially in the wake of Brexit itself, there was that amazing moment where it felt like both of the parties were just going to kind of collapse. Mm. You know, these two corpses that had been propping each other up would finally kind of fall in on each other. And what a handful of people, and it only ever really was a handful of people, yeah. which is why it was so vulnerable, within the Tory party spied an opportunity, which was not to hijack this to turn us into some neoliberal fantasy island, as the kind of left anti-Brexiteers would suggest that they would. Or that Liz Truss yeah. might have liked <laughs> No, that probably sounds quite good from her perspective. Um, that failed project. But that um, a kind of politics which would cultivate this new kind of Brexity working class base that would try to respond, even if it wasn't a slightly partial and incomplete way, to that demand for more democracy, for mm. their um, concerns to be put back on the table, for politics to become more responsive to them, for those concerns about globalisation or technocracy or whatever word it is that we're, we're, or whatever phenomenon it is that we're describing, was going to be kind of front and centre and they could in many respects kind of carve out a new, a new base for themselves. Um, they were handed that, now they've completely squandered it. And what I think is interesting at this point is that you're left with a party that is not so much divided. We often say that about the Tory party. It's, yeah. divided. it's not divided, it's dissolving, it's evaporating. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what's interesting about recent days, and we've seen this over recent years as well, is that there's not even kind of two coherent factions split on a particular issue. Um, certainly not post-2016, 
2019 when yeah. a lot of the kind of Remainer hardcore anti-Brexiteers more or less got kicked out of the party and the other ones who were of that ilk just had to put up with it essentially. It's become even more sort of confused mm. and um, the different lines make no sense. People back one leadership challenger last time around, you think, really? Like there was just this kind yeah. of, re- it, it was, it had just become a kind of party of 300 or so individual factions, yeah. you know, rather than something that was quite coherent. So having squandered that opportunity to give themselves some purpose, given the fact that, you know, that position they had as the old party of the establishment had kind of worn itself out, um, they squandered it and they don't know what to revert back to. Yeah. They, they genuinely have no idea what they're for. I think that was part of the reason why Liz Trust came forward. You know, it was kind of, again, it was this, uh, the Thatcher tribute act thing at least gave it yeah. a kind of aura of coherence and yeah. something that they could understand. Even if only cosplaying at something. Exactly. But um, now, what is it? Mm. They don't know. Um, and that's a big part of what makes things so incredibly <laughs> hard to call at this particular point. Yeah, it's sort of the you do wonder what is the point of them even limping on in, in government. You mm. know, the the need for a sort of general election feels, you know, much more immediate now than, than ever. I mean, we, we definitely need one. We needed one when Liz Trust took over, not yeah. just because it was such a diversion from the 2019 manifesto and what, all, what that represented. Um, but, you know, at least she was elected by 82,000 people. Yeah. It was 82,000 more than Jeremy Hunt had, given he didn't even make the leadership ballot last time around. And now we're in a whole different phase where we're going to see another leader mm. come in. The only chance of one of them having a democratic mandate was if Boris staged some sort of unlikely <laughs> comeback. It's a very, very strange state of affairs. The British Berlusconi. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes a kind of pound shop Berlusconi, <laughs> but with a much lamer party scandal behind yeah. him, dogging him. But, um, you know, we, we it's, it's such a strange time because the whole, you know, we're laughing and it's an absurd spectacle. Um, and the Tory party, famously one of the, you know, the, uh, the most successful political party in history mm-hmm. uh, has produced all of these, whatever you think of them, historical figures, whether you're talking about Peel or Churchill or Thatcher or whoever, um, has just come down to this. It's absurd, but also it's um, the tragedy being that not only if those voters who were, who were finally listened to have now been sort of abandoned again, but also there's that sense of, you know, no one being around to meet the crisis and what that requires you know there being no one who has a conceivable idea of not only getting a grip on this but doing so in a way that has voters at its heart that public support all the rest of it it's just so little prospect of that at this point which is why general election is so important you know regardless of what happens how much it kind of scrambles the dials it's something that really needs to happen but at the same time i think out of sheer self-interest they'll want to limp on as long as they can just because yeah. they'll assume i suppose that it can't get any worse than this <laughs> which maybe it can well, yeah, the polls are, you know, not looking good. The mm. People are assuming a sort of massive electoral wipeout, you know, hundreds of safe seats being lost. So, yeah, you can see why they'd want to cling on for dear life for, yeah. <laughs> just for another two more years or so. Mm-hmm. But Labour's not really offering an alternative, not really stepping up to the plate um, to meet the challenges of today, I think it's fair to say. No, I mean, they're, they're just the beneficiaries of the collapse of the Tory party. I mm. think that's obvious. 21, Keir Starmer has been playing this incredibly cautious game and it's paid off, I guess, but in quite um, spectacular and, and uh, extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. So it's not really a vindication of him. I don't think people are desperate for him. I think it's um, this is effectively the um, fault of the Tory party and its complete collapse, its complete idiocy, mm. um, its inability to 
actually grab onto the opportunity that it was handed to it. You get that kind of sense now that they're actually almost semi-relieved that it's all yeah. over, that they don't have to pretend to like those red wall voters I think they're quite happy anymore. to betray them. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, most of them had no idea what all that was about, really. Um, and Keir Starmer is the beneficiary of that. I mean, we're in the bizarre situation in which the Labour Party has a lead amongst Brexit voters, mm. led by the man who backed a second referendum, yeah. uh, who marched next to Emily Thornberry, who was wearing a kind of EU flag dress, you know, all of this. The man who said your vote doesn't count. Essentially. essentially. Yeah, exactly. And this is where we are. But that's not because everyone is really won over to his programme. I think the other thing that's worth saying is that, you know, wh whatever a Keir Starmer leadership, uh, premiership, I should say, looks like, um, it's not going to meet the challenges of today it's not going to meet that desire for more representation and mm. democracy not least because in the last few days almost explicitly he has capitulated to the very consensus the very kind of narrow there is no alternative which has reasserted itself yeah the most he could possibly hope to do is you know sort of nibble around the edges of that particular consensus um you know you might get a sure start center but you're not going to get much else in terms of <laughs> transformative <laughs> politics you know. it could be secure delivering the austerity measures quite conceivably exactly and what i what i really worry about is the fact that this it's going to sort of breed a level of particularly if, if because of the tory implosion you get kind of quite a substantial labor um, majority is that that's going to mask a lot of alienation yeah the pundits will think common sense has broken out again the elites are back in control Keir Starmer's a clubbable individual look at that mandate everyone's happy with it but you know it was a bit like you know the Blair governments in the early 2000s and so on the successes masked a lot of political disaffection working yeah. class voters peeling off I think a lot of people will go back to not voting mm. I don't think they're going to just rush back over into the Labour column necessarily um but as I say, I think it just underlines how much the Tory party has fucked it rather than Keir Starmer playing any blinder in any meaningful sense. I mean, is there a future for populism? As you said, those voters are still there. Mm. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to be satisfied with whatever is going to be put on offer either from the Tories or from Labour in the next few weeks. Well, I think it will re-emerge because it always does. And I think, yeah. as we were talking about earlier, the conditions which um, brought it about and have sustained it haven't really gone away. Mm. Um, if anything, I think what we'll probably see is a kind of elite overstep, believing yeah. that we're back in control, we can ram our own, whether it's economic orthodoxies or slightly bizarre cultural values down everybody's throats. We've got a taste climate. of that. There's the climate stuff as well, definitely. But, you know, even with the even with the sort of the woke politics stuff, we've got a taste of that with Keir Starmer at the yeah. Pink News Awards talking about what he wants to do with Gender Recognition Act and even making some noises towards toughening up hate crime, which basically means hate speech, which basically <laughs> means censorship these days. And I think that's something we saw in America with Biden. You know, they get back in power yeah. and there's this kind of almost doubling down mm. on a failed agenda. And I think what we've seen in um, places both in America and also places across Europe is that this this will find an outlet. Yeah. Even if it's not a particular political party right now because there's not many options on the table. Um, one thing that I've found is that, you know, it, it always explodes somewhere else at some yeah. point, whether it's a protest movement, whether it's a particular issue in which people were taking on the establishment. You see it takes so many different forms, whether it's the Gilets jaunes or the parents' movement in America, mm. or wherever it is, you can't suppress this because fundamentally what this is about, whether we're talking about politics and representation, whether we're talking about the economy, whether we're talking about um, values and the culture war and so on, is that across the board, there's this desire to push a failed consensus, an elite consensus, an unpopular consensus down people's throats. And I think, remembering that Brexit was only six or so years ago, yeah. uh, people aren't going to put up with that forever. Um, so I think what we're seeing with the Tory party is that um, the one vehicle in the mainstream amongst the two main parties that, that could have been used to kind of push that a little bit further 
has been found wanting because of the short-sightedness, idiocy, and just naffness of the Tory party, but it's not gone away. Yeah. How could it? And I think the question is now, what form does it take? There's always that danger that you do breed a level of disaffection. People felt like they could reshape politics. They felt like they were being listened to. They felt they could make an impact. And then they were not only ignored by, say, their old party in the form of the Labour Party, they were then failed by the party that they switched to. But at the same time, you know, you never know where it's going to explode. And I think to act as if, oh, it's just gone now, yeah. it's dead, is absurd <laughs> because those voters haven't gone away and their concerns haven't been wiped off the map just because Liz Truss has imploded, as we always knew she would, if not this soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.